Hello and welcome to the What Are We Even Doing Here podcast, the podcast that seeks to answer the question of what are we even doing here from a biblical perspective. We are part of the Christian Podcast Community. Check out this and many other great podcasts at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. My name is Daryl and the Word of God says from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today and how in apologetics, that is the defense of the Christian faith, that everyone knows that God exists. We, the, the heavens declare it. What, what God has made declares that he is there. So when somebody says they're an atheist, don't believe them because they know God exists the same way we all know that God exists, but they suppress that truth and their unrighteousness, as it also says in Romans 1. And we'll get to that. And my guest today, I met him recently because I'm a student at Westminster, Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in Philly, but I'm doing the online program. And this was my apologetics professor for, yeah, apologetic, intro to apologetics. And this is Dr. Nate Shannon. How are you doing today, doctor? Doing great, Daryl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for coming on. Um, the, the class was great. It was great having discussions with you. Um, you know, I'm still getting used to the, the online program, but I, I think it's great the way it's, it's designed with the, the interaction. Um, between students through, you know, all over the country, all over the world, uh, but, but to also interact with, with you and ask questions that we have. Um, but before we get into any of that, just just talk a little bit about yourself. You know, if whatever you want to share, whether personal or professional, uh, about family, ministry, what you do at, at Westminster. Thanks, Daryl. No, let me second your um, commendation of that online courses. Initially, I've been involved in the online courses here at Westminster for a couple of years. And initially, I was a little bit skeptical because I, you know, I learned so much being on campus um, myself. I did an MAR and a THM at Westminster. Um, But I have really learned to love the online programs for specifically the reason that you're, you you pointed to that um, we can have discussions uh, with people all over the world who are sort of like-minded in their search for a deeper understanding of what scripture is, how scripture works and how to apply it to life and ministry and so on. Um, so of course there's the challenge of, um, of interaction um, and communication, but there are challenges to, you know, moving to Philadelphia in order to study in, at seminary. So either way there's, there are challenges, but um the 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 global aspect is truly is a true delight and and I think irreplaceable. So I'm I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the the courses that I've been involved in in the online course and the online program and so on. So a little bit about myself. Um, I was chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, praise the Lord. But um, um, to to jump a few. A few years forward, I, I'm originally from the western part of the great state of Pennsylvania or the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, my parents came to faith in the '60s, which which I think meant two things: a kind of um, a kind of anti-establishment, a streak of distrust of establishment, and men in suits. And um, but at the same time, a lively evangelistic fervor. So I think those two things. Uh, sort of permeated my early, my own early Christian life. Uh, I sort of came to theological consciousness um, studying at Westminster 
uh, well, after I had studied music, um, and then I, and then I ended up studying at Westminster through various, um, uh, through the mysterious guidance of the Lord. I think the Lord working through my own, uh, self-important ignorance. I think every decision that I've made in my life has been made in perfect ignorance on my part and perfect sympathy and gentleness on the part of the Lord. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so I ended up at Westminster. In fact, um, my first two courses, first two Westminster courses were the theology of Martin Luther and Christian encounter with world religions, the latter being with Harvey Kahn. Now, both of those courses I took by distance. We, we were talking online program used to be called distance courses or distance learning. Yeah. And for those courses, I received a box of cassette tapes. Um, so I had the privilege of studying with Harvey Kahn. Uh, years after he had already gone to be with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time I was living in Romania where I was married. So just recently married. So I became a Westminster student toward the end of 2003, but didn't step foot on campus until the spring of 2004. And then I did MAR, uh, THM. I did my PhD through the free, free University of Amsterdam. Um, and sort of going back and forth, I was living here in Philly and working at Westminster. Then just as sort of the ink was drying on my PhD, uh, I accepted a position uh, as professor of systematic theology, assistant professor of systematic theology at a seminary in Seoul, South Korea. So I went there for six and a half years and just returned to the States in um, 2021. It still feels recent to me that, you know, that's, we're now in 2023, but um feels very recent anyway. And then now I'm at Westminster serving in two capacities. I am um, uh, associate director of curriculum and assessment in global ministries. And I'm adjunct professor of apologetics and systematic theology. So that's sort of where I am. I'm ordained in the PCA um, um, and uh, happy to serve uh, the church in that capacity. I'm very happy to be at Westminster in that role. That's great. Um, you said you, you you studied music. Were you uh, are you an instrumentalist, vocalist? What I studied uh, cello, cello performance. So I was in the world of classical music, uh, undergraduate, some graduate studies, and then sort of overnight, I I felt sort of summoned out of the world of music, and you know the the the. the uh, I, I'm still unable to articulate an exact sort of explanation for that turn that my life took. Um, but literally overnight, I decided to quit music after mm-hmm. investing many years in it and then found my way to theology. Yeah, my, uh, my wife and I were music majors. That's how we met at, at Rowan University in Glasgow. Oh, no okay. Yeah. So I was, uh, I'm a percussion, percussionist, drummer. And, oh, okay. and, yeah, and she uh, she's a, she was a vocal major there, but she also plays piano, which is cool because now she plays uh, piano in in church for the for the hymns. the The usual um, woman who does it actually got injured, so she's been, Karen's been my wife's Karen. She's been filling in here and there when she can to, to play the hymns. So it's cool that you know she, now she gets to to use her gift in in that way uh, for the Lord. Praise the Lord, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I think. Yeah, I remember I sat in Scott Oliphant's office once and, and people, 
had asked me often if 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 studying music had somehow or in any way or in what possible way had helped my studies of theology. Um, and I never really knew how to answer that. So I asked Scott Oliphant <laughs> if he thought that my having studied music, you know, would help my, would somehow would, I don't know, aid in my pursuit of, of theological understanding. And he said, I, I think he gave a very succinct answer. He said, yeah, sure. And then, but he didn't offer much explanation. So I felt, <laughs> I felt encouraged, but, but I didn't have any more, you know, sort of, but I, I think it helps in a number of ways. I think there's a human aspect to music. Mm-hmm. I think there is a visceral humanity to studying the arts that, that, that you what I think doing the arts puts you in a mode of watching, observing and commentating on the world um, that you don't get from other, um, other sort of ways of living. It, 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 it puts you in a, and it, it gives you an opportunity to be critical about the world. Yeah. You could put it this way. It puts you on the outside. And I think that's, I think that's very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And also aesthetics, you know, thinking about how things affect you, things that you read or hear, you know, or the, the, the feeling of performing music, I think has helps in our study of scripture. And as we were discussing earlier, I, th- I think being in the pulpit, uh, you know, having having performance experience is very informative for being in the pulpit. It can, it can it can be helpful. It also mm-hmm. equips you with some things which can I think be over or misused. Mm-hmm. But there are some comparables uh, there. I think. Yeah, and I think even even apologetically, you can't have music in in a world that's not sustained by a constant uh, like. Like if if God doesn't exist, then we can't have music because you. It's almost like science. Like in order to to understand anything, we need certain things to be constant. So so for for a whole note or 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 even like a scale, a major scale to be a major scale, you know, with with you know half steps, whole steps, you need that to be constant because you 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 can't have that in a world of chaos. So, so a, a Beethoven symphony is always going to sound like a Beethoven symphony because of that, that constant tuning, you know, where you, 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 you tune your instrument and all the orchestras tune to that instrument. You, you can't have that right. in, a, in a world without a, a sustaining God. Right. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. A number of things. I mean, the, the religious lives of various composers and you compare Beethoven to Bach to Mozart mm. and their mm-hmm. moral inclinations and so on. And, um, Edgar, Bill Edgar has some great literature on this, a great essay on Brahms, which I'd recommend to everyone. Um, but also that, you know, you, you, you mentioned sort of the common practice harmonic, uh, system or common practice harmony. Gaff, Richard Gaffin says that scripture, so, you know, scripture wants to be systematized. Systematic theology is a mandate of the Bible. We should seek to understand. And he adds this, that the scripture will always resist our systematizing efforts. In other words, scripture wants to be systematized, but it will always humble us. It will never obey, uh, our, our, our logical structures hmm. to the T. In other words, we will always be left wondering. Um, and I think general revelation is the same. So that, you know, that the harmonic system is very interesting because it works. It, it works so well as a logic of sound, mm. but it does not obey 
at, at the end of the day. So you know that, for example, a piano is tuned to octaves. So if you play all the, say, all the C's on your piano, but if mm-hmm. you play all the fifths, none of the fifths are perfect because you can't have both perfect at the same time. So yeah. it's very, it's very interesting that it's, it's as though like common practice harmony sort of lives the same humbled life as systematic theology that it works so beautifully and draws us upward toward heavenly things. But we also have to acknowledge the imperfection of our, of our own highest achievements. And wow. <laughs> that's great. That's beautiful. So, yeah, so let's, let's get into uh, apologetics a little bit and, and what it is, but specifically the, you know, the, the, the class uh, intro to apologetics, we had to read the book by uh, Dr. Oliphant covenantal apologetics, which, most people might know that uh, presuppositional apologetics, they might be more familiar with that term. Uh, you know, the listeners to this program, most come from a reformed background. But uh, covenantal apologetics, will, will you explain that a little bit for the audience? Sure. And you mentioned, you know, different terminology by which this, let, let's call it, approach to apologetics is known, presuppositional, uh, transcendental covenantal some people even dare to say vantillian you know mm. which, which is true but somewhat uh, reductionistic um i think that what vantill brings us is an expression of a much broader theological um impulse or or theological culture i would even say vantill in my in my understanding sort of has concentrated for us on the question of apologetics a movement more or less branded, I don't want to say initiated, but branded by by Kuiper, by Abraham Kuiper, in the sense that Van Til has brought apologetics as such under the sort of reforming impulse of Kuiper. So what is covenantal apologetics? Um, instead of sort of defining it first, I'd like to put it in terms of the bigger picture of the sort of, I, I think that it is, or how it came to be, is an kind of an ad fontes reformation of apologetics. In other words, what is reformation? It is a revisiting of our sources in order to re-understand, in order to potentially redefine. Today we use the, you know, you can click on your browser, refresh. So it is a full-blown wholesale refresh of whatever it is we think of as apologetics. If we're going to defend the faith, what is that? What is the faith? How do we defend it? What exactly does that mean? So we return to scripture and to confession. And I think, um, again, in in order to redefine or reevaluate what apologetics is and how we do it, how is that Kuyperian? I think it's Kuyperian in the sense that Kuyper in his own day was concerned about what he called political totalism, which is the idea that every aspect of human culture was being politicized. What he saw was the French Revolution, but he he was almost prophetic um, with regard to not only political totalism, but totalitarianism in the 20th century. So and and well his response was one of deep concern about the cultural survival and the cultural witness of christianity which is not just an apologetic concern but it's a concern about being faithful to the gospel so 
He was concerned that if we will be faithful to the Christ who is our Savior, we must have a Christianity that is more than religion and even more than piety. So you might think, well, as long as we're pious and faithful to Christ, we're doing our duty. Kuiper is trying to say, no, when Christ is raised, that is the inauguration of the remaking of all things. So we should live appropriately. Um, we should take seriously the cultural implications of the gospel and not truncate the gospel at uh, eschatological hope. Hmm. It is eschatological hope, which entails a way of living now. Um, so, so I think that he recognized that if Christianity did not develop that kind of worldview machinery, if it did not recognize its, its, its cultural implications, that it would be under constant and fierce threat of marginalization, that it would be culturally relativized or rendered irrelevant, which we see today, um, that the faith of people would be under threat, that we would be, um, in fact, again, unfaithful to the fact of resurrection, to the, to the, to the, to the gospel itself, to Christ, who is Lord of heaven and earth, who has received all authority in heaven and on earth by virtue of his obedience unto resurrection, um, and really to the sovereignty of God. So, yeah, it's, I don't want to get too much into this, but what, what, what I think he was concerned about was a kind of cultural defeatism, which doesn't sort of jive with our understanding of who God is and with our understanding of what the resurrection is. So he says, we need to re, renew all of culture. Now, actually, Kuiper himself was a, had a kind of theological allergy to apologetics because of what he understood it to be, mm. which was, natural natural theological which was speculative which was uh, engaging philosophy in terms of philosophy so he didn't consider that faithful to the gospel faithful to the resurrection coherent with who we say god is um so his response was to develop what he believed to be the native capacity of calvinism we can just say self-consistent christianity he of course said everywhere calvinism but by the way, uh, to serve not only as religion, but as worldview, as the renewing impulse of all of life. And so Ventil saw in that the capacity for uh, what we could rightly call apologetics, even if it is not well. And, it, and it's important to emphasize that it is not detached from uh, from conversion, from repentance, from regeneration to the life of the church in the world. So his point is to say, well, listen, if we examine, if we examine what the gospel is, apologetics as such, defense of the faith, vindication of who Christ is, is not separable. It's, it's not sort of, it's not optional. It is a part of the gospel itself. Hmm. So in terms of specifically of what, um, covenantal apologetics is, there are some distinguishing doctrinal emphases the first thing that comes to mind if you begin to read if if, as you begin to read van till is um it's interesting that for example in christian apologetics which i would say is probably an introductory van till text he begins to speak immediately about the doctrine of god um the, the 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 reason for that is that, uh, and, and you'll see in this, he does sort of a quick review of, of ST in a matter of pages of, of the sort of the basic loci of, of systematic, systematic theology. 
the reason for that is if our if our God is truly both absolute and personal, everything else falls out accordingly, even down to our doctrine of salvation. How is it that you are saved? His his argument, why does he pick on Arminians so much, for example, or on Roman Catholics? Because he believes that their doctrines of sin, their doctrines of grace, their doctrines of regeneration are in irreconcilable tension with the biblical doctrine of God. If God is self-existent, if he is self-existent, simple, uh, infinite, immutable, and impassable, then it is the case that grace is sovereign and that we are without a hope in the world un- until he put, summons us out of darkness into light. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, the, the doctrines of grace of the Reformation really put on full display the doctrine of God. So, so Van Til is sort of at pains to bring to bear the biblical doctrine of God. And of course, when I say biblical, I mean, Augustinian, the best of Augustine, I mean, you know, and so on and so forth. Biblical doctrine of God to bear on the, on the rest of uh, systematic theology on Christian life and confession. But, but specifically in terms of interaction with culture, Kuiper and Kuiperian thought would emphasize the antithesis and common grace terms which with which you're familiar now having taken AP 101. But the, yeah. the, you know, the, the idea of antithesis and common grace together commend to us a way of interacting with the world or a way of interacting with unbelief. Um, my buddy Alex Tsung wrote a little book on Hegel for PNR. And in that book, he gives this illustration. Um, he's discussing Bavink, Voss and Van Til and how they interact with with Hegel, and he says that um, for neo-Calvinism, Hegelian thought is like a shipwreck, but it is the wreck of one of the greatest ships ever built. Mm. So there's, you know, sort of in this metaphor, there, there's a lot to salvage from Hegelian thought, but the project itself was a disaster. Mm. So the antithesis is the fact that unbelieving thought is doomed from the start because it begins because it begins and all the way through uh, is a is an active rejection of the God who is known, right? So 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 the yeah. But at the same time, um, <clears throat> there is a grace of God which is in dis, which is put on full display in human accomplishment. No one can read Hegel and not say, well. You could read Hegel and close the book and say, I have understood nothing. And that is a normal human reaction. I think. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you, when you read a great philosopher or a great scientist or whatever it is, musicians, you, I think you'd have to be out of your mind not to acknowledge the greatness of, uh, of the accomplishment you've, you've beheld or you've experienced. But at the same time, you know, we, we also have to, be sort of sober-minded about the tragic nature of of autonomous human accomplishment that it is mm. it only heaps up offense before god you know so yeah. antithesis and common grace sort of give us um provide for us uh again a grid for interacting with unbelief that is that is um that is also at the same time a grid for culture, one which involves um, a, a real impulse for appreciating and for engaging. We have every reason to engage Hegelian thought or to engage whatever occurs uh, sort of in the world around us, but also knowing that the real 
issue is the wrath of God and a, and a covenant condemnation under which unbelieving thought uh, operates. So, so getting sort of more specifically for Kuiper, what apologetics is not, or for Kuiperian thought, what 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 apologetics is not is autonomous speculation. Nothing can be done. Nothing should be done in the name of the God of Scripture, in which we shake hands or or enter into partnership or enter into covenant with not God's people, with the thought patterns of unbelief. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess sort of finally, what is covenantal apologetics? <laughs> covenantal apologetics is it I it identifies a theological error in the, the more typical ways of doing apologetics, which is this, that apologetics is done um, under the assumption that logic or, let's say, reason uh, provides for us a neutral territory in which we can discuss ideas, in which we can sort of we can shake hands with the unbeliever. We can leave bias behind and we can use the tools of human reason um, in order to. Uh, convey to him a reasonable faith where that reason again is defined in, in, a, in a neutral sense where so long as there's enough time and we know our stuff well enough and we're clever enough. And it, you know, so long as the stars are aligned, so to speak, we will be able to put on full display the logical, uh, that, 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 that reasonable sort of satisfactory character of the Christian faith that we should be ashamed of nothing uh, because at the end of the day, Christianity is intelligent and intelligible to anyone who will listen. Um, covenantal apologetics, Vantil Kuyper, Bavink, Johann Bavink, Voss recognizes that there is a profound oversight in that approach in the sense that it treats human beings as neutral characters and it treats the world as a neutral context, but scripture never looks at that, looks at it that way. Mm-hmm. There is, um, Johann Boving puts it this way. Ventil is a kind of different way of putting it. Johann Boving says there are two communions with God. There is the metaphysical communion with God that is just the same as human existence and human consciousness. To be an image bearer, to be a human being means to be in communion with God, uh, because God goes before man. There's nowhere we go, whether, whether, whether emotionally, psychologically, uh, intellectually, um, of course, geographically, there's nowhere we go where God isn't already, where he, he doesn't fill heaven and earth. There's no thing we can think about that God hasn't already thought. There's no feeling we can have that isn't already in touch with the self-revelation of God. You know, mm. Psalm 19, you read, you read at the, at the opening. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everything declares the human consciousness is a declaration of the glory of God. To be conscious means to be conscious that I am a creature of God. So I'm using some Vantillian language, but Johann Bob in, in his work on religious consciousness ex- explores this in terms of other religions and religious experience, particularly in Hinduism and, and in, uh, uh, and in, uh, Islam, particularly mysticism. So there's that universal uh, communion with God, but there is also a moral communion with God. Here, Ventil will talk about epistemological, but we can, I think the moral is maybe an even broader category. And that moral category, um, 
affords the kind of distance that scripture speaks of. So there's a sense in which we are never at a distance from God. No one is removed from the presence of God. That's sort of metaphysical communion. Again, all of human experience is in immediate communion with God, but there is a moral communion with God as well, or covenant communion with God. Um, when Adam and Eve are ejected from the Garden of Eden, they are, you know, in the garden, they had real communion with God. He walked with his, with, with his people. Um, but they also had covenant communion with him. Adam was righteous. And so he could commune with God. He could, he could, he could approach God. And the, the two trees of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life offered to Adam greater increased and perfected communion with God on condition of perfect obedience. So on the condition that he confirm who he is, that he declare publicly before God by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he is a God follower, that he will image God with his will, um, with the whole of his being, with the whole of his person, then he would be invited not to greater geographical communion, because there isn't, he's already dwelling with God, but to greater and perfected covenant, moral, religious, everything communion with God. Mm. So when he's kicked out of the garden, yes, that's geographical separation, but don't forget that God is not, God is not now not omnipresent. He's still everywhere as much. He's in one place as much as he, he's east of Eden, just as much as he's west of Eden, just as much as he's Mm -hmm. in Eden. But covenantally now there's a distinction. So their, their being removed from the garden indicates to us, the readers of Genesis and, and probably most acutely to Adam and Eve, their moral separation from God. Mm -hmm. Um, the fact that they are sent away teaches them that God does not abide disobedience, sin, or unrighteousness in his presence. He does not, and he cannot. Um, So there is no place in human existence. You know, the sun runs its course, you know, Psalm 19. There's no place where its voice or its words or its speech is not heard. There's no place in human existence. It's inconceivable that that we could be sort of outside of the presence of God or outside of awareness of God. Um, but we are in such a relationship with God that we can be under, that we can be, that we can, that the, the question of our response to that presence of God or to the God that we know is a volitional question. So you can be in the presence of God, but at enmity with, with God, mm. you can be in the presence of God, but, but in everything that you do in every moment of consciousness at enmity with him responding in hostility to him or you can have been by grace through faith and not by works restored to loving communion with him adopted into his loving care um, and under grace rather than wrath so covenantal apologetics says that is the situation that's the human situation that's the created situation that's the redemptive historical that's the eschatological situation so apologetics which pretends that is not true dabbles in delusion in the in in the delusion that that we can convince the uh, the unbeliever of something like the existence of a god or gods or the existence of a deity and that that matters mm-hmm. but it can't matter we know that every enemy of God that we read about in scripture was a theist, believed in God or gods. Right. Um, and, and, um, and, you know, so the real issue again is 
the antithesis or is enmity with God or is the problem of sin is the judgment under which we stand and on which is which is which is coming. And the only solution to that, the only mediator between God and men is is Christ. And he is the only way to doxological restoration of the condition of man. So apologetics must serve the gospel. And it can only do that if it takes seriously the biblical and covenantal picture Mm. of who the who who the human being is and and what his situation is today. Nice. Amen. That that was awesome. Um you threw a lot out there. <laughs> but uh I think the the listening audience will will appreciate that. But maybe maybe some in the audience are are a little, little intimidated they hear the word apologetics and they 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 might not even know what what that means on its on itself. Uh but but why do you think why is it important for Christians to learn about apologetics and what kind of resources would you recommend for somebody just, just starting out like any books or, or uh, any other resources that like the, the Christian off the street, you know, that, you know, wants to defend their faith and, and then they see certain things. They're, they're more familiar with, you know, the kind of evidential approach to it, um, which, which maybe has its place here and there. Um, and we can use evidence, of course, uh, but but they're mainly in, into that world, like you know, proving God exists by certain, um, you know, science or whatever, but not really going from the scriptures. So, so why is it important for, for this kind of approach to be learned? And what resources would you recommend for that? Yeah, that's a great question, Daryl. I I think my initial interest was in uh, in apologetics. What led me to to read Van Til, um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and other material, I don't mean to reduce the whole thing to Van Til again. He's just, mm-hmm. he's just, um, given a name to some of the, you know, kind of, he's identified some implications of the deeper structures of Calvinistic thought, particularly as Kuiper, Bob and Voss, you know, and, and, and both Bobbings, uh, sort of gave voice to it. But, um, what initially led me to apologetics was my interest in the things that you mentioned, different schools of argumentation, engaging with science, engaging with philosophy. What's Aquinas up to? What is William Lane Craig up to? What is Alvin mm-hmm. Planning and, and, and Nick Walterstorff? What are these guys up to? I, I loved that literature and, and, um, in my weaker moments, I still love it, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's great stuff. And, and, all of it is interesting in the sense that this is the course that Western culture has has run in its search for better things. Um, but I think it, you know, if there is the yearning in the heart of a person to vindicate the faith, let me put it in autobiographical terms. I remember articulating, I remember I sat in Bill Edgar's house trying to explain to him why I wanted to study more. And I, I, I said, if there is a, I said, if there's a weakness in what we believe, I want to find it. Mm. And, and he sort of chuckled and it took me years to sort of understand why he thought that was a little bit funny. But I, I think if I were to guess, I'll ask him next time I see him, but, um, (laughs) if I were to guess, I, I think that what is endearing about that is that I had an internal need. I had a personal need for a more thorough understanding, you know, a a more, a more, a more 
doxologic, doxological encounter with the depths and the riches of the knowledge of God. That's what I really needed is a, uh, to, to taste and see the goodness of God and to experience profounder worship um, by, you know, in, including deeper knowledge of, of who he is and what he's done. But I put it in terms of apologetic engagement. I put it in terms of the things that I'd seen on YouTube and the things that I'd read. Um, so I, I think there are two things happening there that, you know, there was a kind of a genuine concern for the public life of the faith, but there was also sort of unbeknownst to me or not fully appreciated my own spiritual, um, you know, there was an inadequacy to my theological diet, I think. And um, as I began to read more and more of historic historical theology and particularly of neo-Calvinism, Bobbing Van Til and others, um, I think an, an appreciation for the Lord himself began to uh, eclipse um, this, the, the sort of busyness of what usually goes by the name of apologetics. So, you know, let, let, let me put it this way. Um, and I mean this in, in a religious sense, but also in a, in a kind of academic theological sense. Apologetics begins when we recognize that scripture knows ourselves. It knows us better than we know ourselves. Apologetics begins when we recognize that scripture is calling us to a very humbling mode of self-examination. Scripture is summoning us before the throne of God so that we would recognize that he is the immovable the self-existent one, the one who does not change, who is all glorious in and of himself, and that in light of his glory and his law, we should begin to re-know and re-understand ourselves. That's the first apologetic. You know, Vento talks about inviting or leading or guiding the unbeliever toward epistemological self-consciousness. No one understands that language the first time he reads it. You know, I didn't, what is he talking about? But what else is scripture doing but asking us to know ourselves in light of the glory and the moral perfection of, of the absolute personal God? You know, and, and so in that sense, scripture is a covenantal self vindication of God, or it is the written, the inspired written record of God's self-vindication in, in, a, in, a, in a world of idolatry, in a world where people, where his image bearers worship false gods and themselves mm. are given over to the delusion of deity. I am God. People who offend me deserve retribution. You know, isn't that the mode of our thinking? Um, but, and, and, and God's self-vindication, his challenge to that profound idolatrous self-importance began when Moses wrote or begins in terms of the biblical revelation, when Moses wrote that in the beginning, the God of Israel created the heavens and the earth. He created the things that you worship, even you. Mm-hmm. And and so it's, it's, it's a, that is a profound sort of yanking the carpet out from underneath autonomy and self-importance. That's the real beginning of apologetics. You know, so if you, if you, if you review kind of apostolic, think of apostolic preaching, what do the apostles constantly preach that God did what he said he would do, that the scriptures have come true in Christ? Are they doing apologetics? You bet they are. 
because they are challenging the self-importance of Israel and they are challenging the self-importance of the Gentiles by saying that the God of the things you worship has made himself known. That is epistemological self, self-consciousness sort of par excellence. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying, you know, if you're interested in, in apologetics, the first thing I would, I would, you know, I would, I would say there are two things you could do. The first thing is to love the Lord your God and the other mm. is to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and, and I think it's so important to, to go deep structure in that sense for this reason, Daryl, that mm-hmm. we don't want to only do apologetics that matters, um, today with the guy I saw at Starbucks or today with the, uh, podcast that I, that I'm sort of engaged or today with that video that was uploaded. We want to understand what apologetics is so that we can be useful, um, in any context. I don't want apologetics to be interesting only to the middle class American who has a college degree, you know, guys like myself. I want apologetics also to be useful in Nairobi, in Seoul, in London. Um, in, you know, small town in Argentina, if, if apologetics really exists, biblically speaking, it should be relevant to everyone everywhere. And so if everyone everywhere says, Hey, what is apologetics? I say it is the self vindication of God in your life and in your witness. Mm. So first of all, in your own heart, according to scripture. And then if you really love other people, as Christ did, he gave up his life. For, you know, if we remember that our enemy is an image bearer, then we will really wonder with that tragic sense of a Kyperian view of culture. We will really wonder what makes him tick. Why is he speaking this way about the world? And we will know that in his speaking about the, the world, in his way of engaging the world, in his way of conducting his marriage, in his way of parenting, in his way of employment, his professional life, what he is really doing at the end of the day is responding to the self-revelation of the one true God. Mm-hmm. And that gives us a grammar for understanding people. And so long as that grammar is motivated by the mournful love which sent the son from heaven. You know, he does not desire that anyone should die. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of anyone, and nor nor should we. We should have a a heartfelt love and and yearning for mercy for the unbeliever. Only when you really love a person, when you really understand that Christ died, that you could you yourself could live a life that glorifies God. Um, are we really rightly motivated to understand the deep structures of unbelief so that we can engage a person unto the glory of God and not unto our own sort of intellectual glory? So, you know, I think if apologetics is understood as a refraction of the gospel itself, Mm -hmm. not only accomplishment, but also application and the gospel lived out in our own lives, then we'll see that everything is useful. If you have a penchant for philosophy, go for it but not because philosophy is the salvation of the world. If you have a penchant for political life, go for it, but not because we will be saved by political victory. If you have a penchant for, you know, this goes back to the first thing you mentioned, Daryl, the, you know, the, the doing Westminster online, you know, we could fill hours. You know, if I were to tell you about all the 
cultural application of a biblical approach to apologetics that I have witnessed, mm-hmm. that I've had the privilege to witness in this course. I mean, um, rural life in the Midwest, interacting with Muslims in the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, dealing with sociopolitical questions in China, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the worldliness of Australian culture, all of these, all of these things, um, um, you know, are, are mission fields for the biblically minded Christian. So, you know, yeah. yeah. So that again, in that sense, there isn't anything anybody should necessarily read. I think you should love the Lord, your God, love your neighbor, and then come study at Westminster. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. But, but that's what I love about this approach to apologetics is, is yeah, exactly what you said and, and read your Bible and and study it and and know what god has already said about these things you know it, it doesn't have to be complicated you don't have to, to study like rock structures or you know things like that i mean those those could be useful but 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 to me it's it's how can i get to the gospel with this unbeliever that i'm having a discussion with as, as much as possible and answering their questions and and i you know it goes back to you know always be ready to give a defense of what you, of of the hope that you have to those who ask you so are people asking you of the hope? So th- that goes back to the whole, whole thing you said about is your life reflecting what you believe? Because people see this world. They see this world is in need of something. It's not how it should be. Everybody has that sense. And I, I just – in a sermon I just preached on on uh, John one twenty nine, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, I started with, with this analogy that – of superheroes, right? There's this love of superhero movies in this world. You know, Marvel and DC make millions every year producing these movies. And this isn't isn't something new. Everybody's always propping up a hero or a story of somebody to come in and save the day. And this is because we know the world's not how it is, how it should be, rather. So, so we want a hero. And the only real hero is Christ. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God sent to do this, to, to save us from, from what, we, what our real need is, and that's our sin. Um, so, so, so this, this, and that's the, the, the approach is, is what, what do people need? What is their need? How do we explain that to them? What they really need? And that's, they need the, they need the gospel. They need Christ. And, and for me to go off on some other tangent to prove, you know, that this or that is there makes no sense if I don't ever get to their true need. And that's why I believe, you know, Christians study your Bible and yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's perfect. That's that's what we're we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. Uh, is there is there any uh, events coming up or anything you'd like to to, to promote or in, encourage people to go check out that that either you're doing or something that's coming up uh, that that Westminster's doing? Yeah, we do. In fact, have an apologetics. Um conference coming up at the end of February. So I believe it's two days, February 28th and March 1. And I think the title is uh, the future of reformed apologetics or the future of apologetics. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a number of um, excellent guest speakers, Dan Strange, uh, James Anderson, Brian Matson, um, Chris Watkin will be beamed in from Australia. He, you know, he's, he's down under. So that the, the trip I think was too much to fit into his schedule, but he'll give a plenary. Um, and, uh, Scott Oliphant 
Vern Poitras will give a paper. I'm going to do a little something as well. Um, if you can be here on campus, it'll be a, it'll be a great time, great time to talk AP and to think about new developments, new research and sort of where we are and, 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 and so on. That'll be great. I believe it will be, it will definitely be available online to current students. Um, and I think it will also be live streamed, but I don't have details on that. So maybe we could post a link somewhere to. Sure to that yeah cool awesome yeah right now i plan to to come in person i'd like to get to campus for that so uh hopefully i'll see you there yeah that would be great yeah so before we wrap up i always ask my guests the the fun question not that we haven't had fun uh discussing the things of god uh but i always send them this i say this will be the fun question about nicholas kim coppola and I just put that name out there and some people were like, who is Nicholas Kim Coppola? So I'm sure they Google it. Maybe they know, maybe there's some fans out there, but, but do you know who Nicholas Kim Coppola is? I want to confess, Daryl, you sent me that name and I Googled it right away. I had no idea who that was. And in my defense, Mm -hmm. I then went to my wife who knows these things much better than I do. And I said, do you know who Nicholas Kim Coppola is? And she said, so I was glad (laughs) I was glad to be the one in that case, in that situation to have. So she was shocked, but also she felt vindicated because my wife doesn't have a high opinion of him as an actor. Okay. okay. And so she said, oh, if he's a Coppola, that's how he gets all those gigs. (laughs) (laughs) How uncharitable, of her, you know, maybe she's right. I don't know. So, so who is he? That's Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage, yeah. definitely. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, so I like Nicholas Cage. I, I do, you know, I, I think he, he takes a lot of movies. He'll take anything that comes his way. And, and I heard mm. that at one point he was doing that because he had uh, some tax problems. So he had to pay the government mm. back. So he was just taking everything to, <laughs> to make wow. some money. Okay. But, but I do, I do enjoy his movies and maybe you've seen a few. So this is the question that I ask. If a Nicolas Cage movie was real life, what character would you want to be in that movie? So this is already an existing movie, and you can't be anybody Nicolas Cage is playing. So it would be like a, a supporting role. Oh, wow. <laughs> that is an unbelievable question. I I mean, I don't know if I know his movies well enough. I mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I, I confess publicly this, you know, that I I did enjoy and it did, so these could have been years ago. So let's assume I'm more mature now and that'll sort of right. get me out of if anyone's uncomfortable with this. Yeah. But um, uh, Lord of War, you remember he played, um, I think, Victor, uh, I think it was the arms dealer that the that okay. we just traded for the. Yeah, with the, I thought I enjoyed that movie. I don't see a place for myself in that real okay. life situation. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was. One one that I liked years ago was uh, adaptation. Okay, he plays. It, it was interesting because it was a it was a movie about a guy trying to make a movie. So it was sort of you know something like that. Yeah. But that was a very peculiar story as well. And if I remember correctly, the, there's a there's like a, a screenwriter in it, and he's he's sort of make, makes me think of Anton Bruckner, who was had sort of severe self-confidence problems, the kind of hmm. kind of guy who would hide in the bathroom when his works were being premiered. And it's like, and it, it you know, um, and he's so, he was sort of like, like that severe lack of self-confidence and all that. And I don't think that's, that's me, but I, I, you know, so it, you know, he, he was sort of like, 
writer's block. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I, if I should be, if I have any place trying to do this pro and sometimes I feel that way about the work that I have. I feel like, wow, that really sounds important, which means maybe somebody else should be doing it. You know, um, I sort of had sympathy for that, but I don't know. Are, are there Nick Cage movies that you can name for me to help me think a little bit better about that? Well, yeah, typically, I mean, more recent ones, I don't know how recent, but like national treasure comes up a lot. Okay. Cause that's just I, the, a fun Nicholas Cage movie where he, he steals in the first one, he steals the declaration of independence because okay. they're going on this treasure hunt. And yeah. And the second one, I forget what they, what they steal, but they get like go underground behind the, uh, what is it? The, uh, what is, what is that called? The, the monument in the rocks where all the presidents are chiseled out. Why can't I think of the name of that right now? Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Okay. So they go like under this secret cave, Mount Rushmore. Um, I don't think there was a third one, but anyway, but that's a, a fun Nicolas Cage movie or like uh, Gone in 60 Seconds or like, so these are all his action movies, like The Rock where, with him and Sean Connery. Where the, so those are some wow. nine, 90s Nicolas Cage movies. Um, Let me tell you something about that I learned doing a PhD. Well, one of the sort of the fallout of doing a PhD is that it, it renders you culturally irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then I lived overseas for you know almost seven years. And so I came back um, even more, even less relevant. Mm -hmm. So the, the great disadvantage I face is that I just don't know that many movies yeah. um, anymore. Yeah. yeah. I don't know a lot of stuff that's coming out now either. <laughs> I yeah. do know again, Nicholas Cage movie. He just had one come out like last year where he played himself and it was like this, this comedy, like no kidding. <laughs> where he's playing his, his self. Yeah. So I haven't seen that one yet. Maybe I'll check that out, but okay. yeah, I just figured, you know, this is a fun question to ask people. And <laughs> well, maybe that's it. I mean, you said I can't choose a role that Nicholas Cage played, but that one yeah. sounds to me. Yeah. I feel like I'm cool. I feel like I'm trying to do the best job at being myself. And, and um, I give myself a solid C minus so far. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're probably the first one that answered it in that way and like really related the character to yourself. And I, I appreciate that. Most people are like, not that they, you know, haven't given it much thought, but, but you, you probably put the most thought into <laughs> to answering the question. You didn't even know what I was going to ask. So <laughs> no, that's good. No, cool. Well, I thank you for your time. Before we wrap up, I'm going to tell the listening audience that if you haven't put your faith in Christ, do so today. You, 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 you know, God exists. And um, and somebody maybe shared this podcast with you so you can hear why Christians believe what we believe. You can hear why we defend it a certain way that we do and that and, and why we care about you. We care about you because you you were made in the image of God and we don't want anyone to perish, to to be in eternal fire, to be out of, of fellowship with God. You can be in right relationship with God now if you just put your faith in the finished work of Christ. He lived a perfect, righteous life, the life that we're called to live, and he lived it. And then he died on a cross, a death that we deserve, a death that you deserve. And he was buried and he rose because death cannot hold a righteous man. He is risen. He's in heaven. But he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And we want you to be in heaven with us, glorifying God and worshiping him. Because at one point, we were his enemy, but he's brought us into his family. He has adopted us as sons, as daughters. We are heirs with Christ, not because of anything that we've done. We've done everything to deserve 
hell to deserve damnation, but because God loved us and sent his son to die for us. And by grace, through faith alone in Christ alone, we are saved. We are in the kingdom of God. And you can be too if you turn to Christ and live. And that's what, why we do what we do and, and why we defend the faith because we know it's true and we want you to be saved as well. So definitely check out if you're thinking of seminary and you think you, you can't get to a campus, definitely check out the online program at Westminster, Philadelphia. I'll put the links in there. And also, if you would like to help support my seminary education, I'll have a link below where you can go if you if you would like to contribute to financially support me. And also, I appreciate your prayers in the continued my continued studies of the things of God so I can minister to, to more and more people. So until next time, also check out all the podcasts in the Christian Podcast Community. I pray you continue to seek the kingdom of God and find out what we are even doing here. Grace and peace. And drive safe, Grady. So she said, oh, if he's a Coppola, that's how he gets all those gigs. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Worst case scenario, I have to ask for help. Cool.